The following presentation was recorded by VIEW Digital Media at the inaugural Southeast Linux Fest in Clemson, South Carolina on June 13, 2009. For more information about the Southeast Linux Fest, visit southeastlinuxfest.org. Hi everyone, um, I work for Sun and I, my day job is primarily evangelizing Open Solaris, but this talk is more of a focus on VirtualBox. How many of you are familiar with VirtualBox in here? Most all of you, so we can just wrap up now. Um, it, it, I will introduce VirtualBox. I know you like had some questions, but um, I'm just curious to hear what do you use it for? How are you using it today? Why are you using VirtualBox? Anyone want to shout out reasons? To run stinking Windows. To run stinking Windows, because you need. Why do you need to run Windows? Uh, your wife has an iPod. Your wife has an iPod, so just to yeah, and that's why I've heard reasons for stuff like that. So the the folk, I don't know if anyone is using it specifically for testing in here, a yeah, couple of you? Okay, and yeah, trying out a new distribution, that's really the focus of this talk is, um, you know, as a developer, whatever operating system you're using as your development environment, how can you utilize VirtualBox to actually test your applications on other OSs? And so we're getting into some of the power of VirtualBox. And then I do combine it, I, do, I am running OpenSolaris. If anybody has any questions on that, I'll be happy to answer them. I am running OpenSolaris as my base OS. Um, so you'll see some of that today. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with OpenSolaris in here. There's a couple of you. Oh, fair amount. Um, it should look very familiar, familiar to you if you're familiar with uh, the GNOME desktop. Um, that's what we use. And so pretty much what I already said, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about how you can easily develop and test um, applications using OpenSolaris. Just a little bit about my background. I am an ex, ex. I mean, I grew up as sort of a Java developer. Um, and Sun acquired the company I was working for uh, about 12 years ago. Um, and over the last year, I've been working with OpenSolaris, and I started a blog I call The Observatory, where I sort of document my experience with the OS. All right, so my first question for you guys is, who can tell me? Do, uh, so are, how many of you are developers in here? Let's start with that question. Oh, good, okay. Um, what, what does it mean, anybody? I didn't mess Bill. What's Woot mean? I don't even know. So, so how many of you are Java developers in here? Let me ask you that. All right. So, what's sort of Java's claim to fame? What's it? Yeah. Write once, test everywhere. Yeah. So, Java is write once. Here, see what you got. T-shirt. Java is um, write once, run everywhere, or Wara. You hear people say. And so, the sort of concept behind this presentation is well, you really can't just run everywhere. I mean, you're kind of silly if you just write an application and don't actually at least test it on the other, other operating systems that you plan to have it run on. And so you should really write once, which is true. I mean, there's some serious kick-ass Java applications that literally just run on all these different OSs, but certainly they're tested on them as well. And so um, we're starting off with this sort of poor soul today who has, you know, he's built this application and you know, it's like, hey, it doesn't quite look or feel how I expected it to on these other operating systems. Um, you know, what's the best way to test that? And so I'm going to sort of talk about a little bit of web application development real quickly just to set the stage. And then I'm going to really get the bulk of the talk is on the testing part using VirtualBox. Okay. So um, as, a, as a developer, you know, these... Logo should look somewhat familiar to most of you. These are kind of a lot of the common components you need. 
Um, there's Tomcat and Apache and MySQL and then some sort of IDE. Um, and so when you get a new operating system, how do you go grab these things? Do you sort of download them piecemeal and configure them to work together? You know, do you spend like a day getting all that set up? And so one of the things, and this is actually, you know, I know this is a Linux conference, and so one of the things we distribute is what we call the Sun Web Stack, and it's, just, it's available for um, both OpenSolaris and and specifically Red Hat Linux. I don't know why it's necessarily limited to that, maybe the way it's packaged. Um, but you basically get this entire bundle of software, um, one easy install, all configured to work together. We call it the Sun Web Stack. It's basically, you're all familiar with the, con the term LAMP, which is uh, you know, Linux, Apache, uh, My MySQL, Perl, Python, and PHP. And so we'd like to use the term sort of SAMP, uh, which is just the Sun, you know, Solaris instead of uh, Linux basically give you that same sort of capability. And so the command to install the AMP stack from an open Solaris perspective, and this is where things sort of get a little different from maybe what you're used to, is our packaging system. It's just pkg install, and then the actual package name is AMP dev, and it'll actually go and, depending on what you have, it'll grab what's missing. So if you already have Java, of course, it'll detect that and skip that piece. Um, but it could take a while. I think it's like 600 megabytes to throw the whole chunk of stuff down there. Um, but once you're done, you sort of have this you know, basic UI set up where you can start and stop uh, your servers and so on and so forth. And so with that, let me give a quick demo. So this is, um, for those of you who are developers, anybody use NetBeans in here? The rest of you Eclipse? Is that fair, right? Um, so if you're, if you're familiar at all with an IDE, the concept should be relatively the same. <laughs> But what I thought I would do is one of the also uh, concepts of this presentation is developing software today in the IDEs like Eclipse or NetBeans has become, they've made it so easy. You can really, in a matter of minutes, create some pretty powerful applications. It's kind of mind-blowing. And so what I wanted to do was, well, let's take that application that runs fantastic from the IDE, and what does it actually take to deploy it and make it run in the real world? And so this isn't really about developing applications, but just to prove that point of how simple it is, one of the components that was, you know, NetBeans was one of the components installed with the web stack as well as MySQL. And you see here I've gone ahead and created a database called StatusDB. And from within the tool, I can connect to this. I should use my mouse. And once connected, it has nice features. I can view, it's very simple. It's got two tables. It just, you know, the concept is my manager wanted to know what I was up to. So we have, uh, you know, who the, the team member is here. So there's about five people in this table. And then, you know, uh, a table of statuses. There's a foreign key relationship there. All right, so, the, so given that data, that sort of data structure exists, you know, create an application that you can use to manage that data, to add new status, you know, add new employees, add new statuses per month or whatever. And so simply, you know, the IDEs today allow me to do something like create a new Java desktop application. And we'll call this status. It's a database application. And it sees all my database tables that I have configured. So I'll select status. And it found the four fields in there. Um, we'll go to the next page of the wizard. 
It'll even let me create a master detail relationship so I can select the evangelist, um, the stat, I'm sorry, the status table using that foreign key relationship. And now I click finish and it's going to sort of generate a bunch of code here, um, all standard, Java Persistence API, talking to the database. And, and again, the real point of this part of the presentation is just to show you how easy the IDEs make it today to actually create app fully functioning applications. So at this point, I can click Run. And we'll see it start up here in a second. There we go. And you know, it's, it's pretty rudimentary, but it is fully you know, create, read, update, delete capable. And I can select these, and I see the status for that person. I can create new people, delete people, so on and so forth. So assuming now, you know, we've spent some time, we've cleaned it up, we've added our logos to it or whatever, the next step is I'm ready to deploy it. So it's, it's, it launched from within NetBeans, no problem. So now um, one way that I could deploy this app to my team, say I wanted my team to use it, would be using a technology like Java Web Start or JNLP. And so the ID even helps me out with that. I can go into the properties of the project and tell it that I want to web start this app. And I assume even if you're, so for those of you that aren't developers, you've, you've probably come across web start applications before. Now the, the jar files need to be signed and so I'm going to go ahead and just self-sign them for the purposes of this presentation. The IDE helps with that as well. Now when I run the app from within NetBeans, Watch, it'll, be, it'll behave a little bit different. It'll actually, it's actually now building the jar files, signing them, so it's going to take a little bit longer to do that. There's um, a handful of jars here. But now, look, it, it's actually launching it as if you went to a browser, bless you, and it's downloading, you know, downloading the jars. And yep, asks you, hey, do you trust this publisher? We'll go ahead and do that. And then it will start up. Okay. So now I've gotten to a point where, okay, great, I've got a web start enabled application. How do I let you guys use it? Assuming you had your laptops open and you were on my network, what do I need to do next? What's the next step? Deploy it on a web server. One of the web servers that came with the web stack was Apache, so I have that installed as well on my machine. And so the other thing I did one of the sort of windows in NetBeans is a, is a favorites window. It's basically just links to wherever I want in my system. Well, I set up a link to the htdocs directory. This is Apache's htdocs directory. So what I'm going to do is actually just copy from my employee status. All right, the dist directory or the distribution directory has basically the project. And you see the JNLP file there. That's the web start file that was created for me. So I'm going to copy these five and the lib folder has all the libraries I need. I'm just going to copy those guys and come over here and paste. All right, cool. So with that done, I should be able to open up Firefox. And we'll do, make sure, oh, that's not 8080, Apache's running. Okay, so this is the default Apache page that um, lets you know it works, it's effective. So, and then the actual was launch.html. Okay, and now this is, now when I click this, it's going to launch the JNLP file and hopefully load my application. 
<laughs> that's a drag. So that, it didn't work that way in NetBeans. So what, what am I missing here? Any ideas? Any, what was that? Apache what? Yeah, close enough. The, so the issue is the, the JNLP, Apache doesn't know what to do with it. The MIME type isn't configured. It has, and so um, it's not, doesn't come default with Apache, um, at least not yet. And so what I'm going to do, well, here, let me actually show, I'll show you a little bit of the, so here's that web stack um, sort of menu that was installed. And it's a pretty basic UI, but it lets me start and stop the servers. You see it's got a little configuration for Apache here. And then it's got this uh, advanced configuration button. What do you think this does? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so anyhow, I'm going to go into the uh, Etsy directory and edit my MIME types. And yes, and um, and I again to save me trying to remember what this was. I pre-edited, I pre-put it in here, even though it is not there by default. It is a problem you would run into. So I will uncomment this. I will quit this out, and then um, I will come back into my web stack options and use the very fancy stop servers, and then start the servers. And this will basically, because I changed, and it lets me know it's up and running again. And so let's try this one more time. Now, sometimes this takes a minute. Yeah, that's all right. Let me, it just took a second for its cache to, to refresh. So it, this is what I expected to happen. If I, hopefully if I go back now, there we go. So we're good. And so now it says it detects. It's a Java web start application. Let's go ahead and launch it. Click OK. And yes, this looks good. And now it's going to download, hopefully, the jar files. Oh, and there we go. And we're up and running. So now I feel a little bit better. I've actually deployed the application to my web server. And maybe I'm ready for some of you to try it on my team, or maybe not. So let's go back to my presentation slides, which are over here. OK. So that's sort of the software development piece of, you know, what about actually before I you know, inflict it on you guys, what sort of testing could I do to make sure you're not frustrated with my application? All right, so I'm going to talk about a couple of concepts here. One is, uh, how many of you heard of ZFS? Certainly all the OpenSlayers guys have. Um, it's the file system in ZFS. And it's one of the reasons I like running on top of OpenSolaris. Um, and I'll show you why. And then, of course, VirtualBox, which is a big part of this presentation. So let me start off with that. For those of you that already know what it is, I'm sorry. For those of you that don't, it essentially allows you to run guest operating systems on top of whatever host operating system you're using. And the four primary hosts are Windows, OpenSolaris, Linux, and Mac OS. If you have one of those, those are the, the common ones out there. I don't know why everything's shaking. But, um, and then there's VirtualBox, and then you can run all sorts of guests. Um, it's a great way to try OpenSolaris or any operating system you want, especially the free ones. Certainly, people ask me, how do, you know, I have Windows running in a guest. How, how did you get that? You, know, you have to have the Windows license, of course. You just can't 
Uh, but it's cool. You could actually use VirtualBox to run. I have it running Windows 7 if you wanted to check that out because the beta has been made freely available. So just some history on VirtualBox, even for those of you that use it may not be aware of this. Uh, it actually started um, in a tech, the company that created VirtualBox. They're based in Germany. They initially created a, were hired to port uh, Connectix Virtual PC, which was a Mac product. Uh, Microsoft hired them to port it to Windows, and then Microsoft just acquired it from them. And so about four or five years ago, they, got, they had a bunch of cash, and so they started development of VirtualBox, sort of a clean slate. They decided to open source it, and then we acquired them, Sun, last year. One of the best acquisitions I th think we've made, it's um, I, I honestly, when I first, I don't know who's been, who's anyone been using VirtualBox longer, before 2008 in here, 2007? One guy back there. Um, I had never actually even heard of it before we acquired them. And I was familiar with like VMware, of course, and Parallels if you have a Mac. Um, and I was really skeptical. I thought open source virtualization software seems kind of complicated. Uh, it is really solid. I uh, have been extremely impressed. And I assume those of you that here use it are, are aware of that. And so I already listed the platforms that are, it supports. Um, you know, the desktops, you can, you can have a Windows desktop. You can resize it just like a regular window. I can go into full screen mode. You would never even know I was running. I could, you know, load up Windows and VirtualBox here, and you would never know that I had OpenSolaris or Linux underneath the covers. And I actually often forget um, that I have something underneath the covers. Uh, you can go into seamless window mode, which I don't use that often. allows you to put, like, a Linux window right next to a Microsoft window. You can compare and contrast. Really good for testing. Uh, look and feel. The mouse seamlessly will move. Uh, hopefully all of you that use VirtualBox are aware of the guest editions that you install to allow the mouse integration so you can, it doesn't get stuck in the virtual machine. You can seamlessly move in and out of it. Um, you can copy and paste between your host machine and your virtual machine. Uh, save state is one of my favorite features. It's like putting the machine into hibernation. So rather than having to Restart, say, Windows every time you want to use it. You can just save its state, and then you, that's how all mine are saved. We'll see that. And the community behind VirtualBox is very impressive. There's a site I put up there uh, at WordPress where there's all kinds, there's hundreds of pre existing machines. And so if you know you want an Ubuntu machine that's configured for, you know, with uh, Apache and MySQL, you can find that all pre baked. You just down, you know, it's a large download, it's probably three or four gig. But you basically just download this huge file, and you set it up in VirtualBox. You point to it, and you're up and running. It's very nice. So quickly, I'll give a VirtualBox demo. No, I don't want to do that. OK. So this is my environment. I've got, what, eight machines set up. Interestingly enough, four of them are open Solaris, and that's my host operating system. Why would I have a virtual instance of my base operating system? And uh, that's because I'm always testing different things. And for me, it's an awesome test bed. I don't want to, if someone says, oh, try this piece of software, try doing this, I'll most often, if I'm skeptical, do it in a virtual instance of that operating system and make sure it works. Uh, it's also great. I, I, blog, I, I showed you my blog. I blog a fair bit. Uh, when I do write a blog, I try to make sure it's you know will work for everybody. Um, and you know, as developers or as anybody, your machines tend to get friendly to how you operate. You may have set an environment variable or a configuration setting somewhere that allows something to work, 
that, you know, and you've probably seen this in the past, and then it doesn't work for someone else. Using VirtualBox, you can make sure you have a pristine version of that operating system and, uh, you know, test that whatever you're doing works. And a great example of that is when you file a bug report. How many times have you filed a bug report and you get, works for me, as a response, and it gets closed. How, you know, it pisses you off. And so using, I can say, look, take, you know, take this VM, load it up in VirtualBox, do these steps, it will fail. I've re, you, know, so you create a repeatable situation. It's very nice. So simply to create a machine, oop, I didn't want to do that. Let's, uh, what did I do? Started Windows. That's fine. We'll get to that. You click uh, the new button, not the start button. And you'll give your machine a name. And so say I wanted to create, you know, I don't know how many of you were surprised to see an Open Solaris CD in your bag at a Linux conference. But it is there. Uh, there's a couple ways to try it. You, it is a live CD, which most of you are familiar with. So you can just boot it up and see how it works on your machine on the bare metal. You could also use VirtualBox and run it in a virtual machine. And that would simply be something like this. You would select your operating system. Uh, your, you know, your machine has so much memory. How much of that do you want to allocate to the virtual machine? So say I'll go with the default 766. And then again, either you've downloaded a pre-existing hard disk that has some sort of configuration on it that you can just point to, or you're going to create one from scratch. Let's do that option. So it starts a little sub-wizard. Now I have two choices for it. Basically, this operating system is going to be in a single file, just a single disk, a single image. You can design it so that image grows over time up to a certain limit, dynamically expanding. Or you can tell it up front, lay out 20 gigs of space for me for this operating system. Supposedly, the second option it makes sense is a little bit more performant because it never has to increase in size. I've never chosen that option. I always use the dynamically expanding storage. The, the initial file is only a couple hundred megabytes, and it will grow over time as necessary. It's not like I've had hiccups, like what's it doing? It's expanding its storage. I've never seen that. So you know, I can come here, and I can set this thing to you know, 76 gigabytes. It really doesn't matter. It's just you know, be, be liberal here, because what you don't want to happen is for it to, you know, when I first started using Open Solaris, it was in VirtualBox, and I had set up like 16 gigs or 10 gigs, I don't recall, but I actually made it my primary OS, and it wasn't long before I ran out of disk space, and I had to kind of figure out how to add more. What was, is it a what? No, that's the difference between the two choices. So that is not hard allocated. So it'll, we can go look at the file. It'll only be a couple hundred megabytes, and it'll grow up to that as needed. If you did want hard allocated, there was an option to do that. Uh, oh, thank you. I, probably one I don't want to. I don't want to trash. Um, okay. Well, that's that's fair enough. That's yeah. So I did. I I I, know I did create new. Oh, you're yeah, right. Open Solaris. Yes. Um, and that's fine. That was pretty much that demo. You create the disk, and then you go to start the machine. It'll ask you for the, you know, what do you have? Do you have a CD? Do you have an ISO file that you downloaded? Point me to that, and it'll go ahead and start installing that software or loading the live CD. Yes, sir? Yeah. Um, now, it doesn't matter any kind of hard disk, right? It could be external. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be actually in the machine, right? Could you put it on, like, a USB drive? Um, well, yeah. Well, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that way it's separate to the machine if you 
You will. You could, you could have basically a portable virtual machine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another cool thing, and I assume this is in the Linux world as well, you got the portable live USB sticks now, which are kind of cool because the live CD obviously isn't writable. You know, you load it, you can play with it, but as soon as you shut it down, anything you've done is lost. The USB stick, however, you can save files to. So if you had like a 16 gigabit USB stick, you can have a totally portable operating system on a USB stick. No, well, let's do that, for example. So I accidentally started Windows here. Let me just kill this. And so it gives me several options. I can save the state. I can just power off the machine. It's like just turn off the switch. And now if we go back to VirtualBox here, you notice that it says it's powered off. All right, and I, usually I would have had a ninth machine there. I, did, I didn't create it because I used a duplicate name. But let me go back to my presentation briefly. And I want to talk about how I use ZFS, or the Zettabyte file system that comes with OpenSolaris. And um, I could talk a whole hour about ZFS. It's, you know, it's, um, it's a, a pretty cool file system. The, the only point I want to focus with regards to this presentation, or the piece I'm going to use, is this ability to take instantaneous snapshots. It uses a, a ZFS uses a copy on write. Um, architecture, and so what it allows me to do is take pictures of file systems that I've set up that are very efficient, very low overhead, um, and so with that, well here, let me go to one more. So what I've done is VirtualBox stores all of its machines. This is a, um, a graphic from the VirtualBox configuration preferences dialog, and it just shows where my machines are stored. That's the default location. It's a hidden directory off my home directory. And so what I've gone and done is made a separate file system specifically for VirtualBox. And once I have a file system dedicated for VirtualBox, I can take snapshots of that file system. So what this really allows me to do is I talked earlier about my virtual machines being pristine, being clean, not being affected by configuration files, or even, I don't even want my machines affected by prior use. So when I go in and do a lot of testing, I want to be able to sort of wipe any trace that I was ever there, to sort of roll back to how things were uh, at the start. And so with that in mind, let's sort of conclude here. I'm going to shut down. So you see that I have the eight virtual machines. Notice Windows is powered off, right? You just saw me kill the machine. It's, if I went to start it right now, it would boot up from scratch. So let me shut down VirtualBox, and I'm just going to run um, a ZFS command here. And basically, what we're seeing in this output is um, I want you to look at the top half of the screen. And I have various snapshots of my VirtualBox file system. And the name, so the file system is called rpool virtualbox. And then the snapshot is everything after the at symbol. And so I, I sequentially name them so that when I run this list, they appear in order, so clean 14. And basically, as time goes on, you know, I've, been, I've had these snapshots now around for months. You know, things happen. A new version of Java comes out, or a new version of VirtualBox comes out, or I just upgraded my Ubuntu image to 9.04. Um, so I'll, I'll roll back to a clean environment, make the change I want, and then snap a new image of my entire VirtualBox environment. And so that's what you're seeing there. And so just 
the other day, there was a, I was in the Windows environment, and it said, oh, there's a new version of Java available. So I said, OK, I want to capture that. I rolled back to Ubuntu 904, started up Windows, did the Java update, shut it down, or put it in a safe state, and then I did the snapshot of Java update. And so with that, what I can do right now is a ZFS rollback, and then just give the snapshot name. Like that. And that's done. You see, it's pretty instant instantaneous. And then now when we start up VirtualBox, you see Windows is back. It was kind of a, a subtle difference, but Windows is back in its saved state. It's sort of, and if I had created that ninth machine, it would be gone because, I, again, I rolled back to a point prior to me creating that. All right. So let's look at Windows now. Say I've, let's get back to the regularly scheduled program of testing our application. So I've created this app, and I want to see if it'll perform on Windows. That was a very common use case. And so let me go ahead and start Windows up. And again, this is coming out of save, so it's like coming out of hibernation. So it'll take a second. Now I've got three gigs of RAM on my laptop, and that sounds like a lot, but when you start loading uh, virtual machines, it gets used up quick. And so what I've done is I've set up sort of workspaces for my desktops, and so I can come over here, and now I can... Um, Go into full screen mode. And notice that host F. It's pretty critical to remember um, because you, you won't be able to get out of screen. Host, the host key is configurable. The default is the right control. Um, but if you go, once you go to full screen mode, if you don't know the key sequence to get out of it, you basically have to shut down the virtual machine to get back to your host OS. Um, and so now, if I had started, you know, if you all came in to, to Southeast Unexpects, I should have had this up. This should have been my welcome screen. <laughs> I'll remember that next time. But um, right, I could, you would never know that I was in here. And it's, you know, it's pretty performant. And I can start IE. And, it's, uh, and now I'm not connected to the internet, which is why this came up. And actually, I should make a note. I've got kind of some wacky stuff going on back here. Now, the, the demonstration I'm doing with VirtualBox, and this is what I was alluding to with your testing. I don't know if, how many of you actually do network testing with VirtualBox between the guest and the host. And that's really the point of this presentation. So I can. Um, what I, well, actually, I do need to get out of this uh, and come back here. And I need to get my IP address. So what I've done is I brought a, I brought a router with me so that I could serve up IP addresses to my virtual machines as I start them. And so my host machine is a 1.2. And so now if I go back to VirtualBox, to Windows, OK, so the first thing you'll notice, there's no history in my browser, right? You know, obviously, as you work in any of these browsers, they kind of remember where you've been. And it's a pristine copy of IE. I, I never do anything in it um, other than updates to the OS. And so hopefully, I can hit that. Good. I'm hitting the server on OpenSolaris. And now I can hit Launch. Bless you again. That looks good. And now we can launch the app. I should have asked, do we think it's going to work? <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't. And so this is, you know, if I got all excited, said, team, I created this app. Um, go try it out. And you know, you'd be calling me up. It doesn't work. So OK, we look at the details. And we've got some unable to load resource, some temp. 
employee status launch. So obviously it's looking locally for some file, actually the JNLP file. And so I can come back to NetBeans, close. And I'm going to open up this JNLP file. And sure enough, right here, this needs to be the code base. Where, where is, you know, Windows is trying to read this file and it's looking in temp. And I actually got to give it the, I had changed the code base to that, right? So that was something the IDE did for me as a benefit, but actually, as I need to deploy, I need to change. And so I'll just save that. I should be able to come back here. Okay. This may take a couple clicks. There it goes. All right, so that looks better. It's found the files. It's downloading them to my machine. Good, I got the, do I trust? I'll say yes. Yeah. I don't know. We don't have any errors yet, right? But I don't. I don't have anything, right? So, so. Right. Very good. Here, see, you're jumping ahead, but so there's a T-shirt for you. So, but how do I figure that out, though? What is that's a good guess. Um, but how, honestly, how would I? Anybody know how I'd go about figuring that out? Like, I'm just. Server log files. Actually, I think um, I don't know if they would have any. Right, local Java client log files, and so that I can use. There's actually a under the control panel. Uh, actually, oh, all OSs have it on Windows. It's under the control panel. Um, there's a Java control panel, and it has a Java console that you can turn on. So this is just kind of good knowledge to know whenever you're having troubles with Java. So I can close this. And so that's a change I made to my operating system, right? That is turned on forever. And again, I don't have to worry about turning it off. When I'm done with this presentation, I do my rollback, and it's back to the way it was. But with that, let me actually try to launch again. OK, we see. OK, good. So. <laughs> We did have a silent exception, and and you are correct. If we went and looked through all this, it is, you know, SQL exception, blah blah blah. And so, let me close this down and go back. And in this case, I actually have to go into the project itself. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Java Persistence API or or Toplink or anything like that or Hibernate. But um, you see here that it is uh, here, localhost. And that was definitely a problem. So we should do that. And now we, that's actually part of the jar file, so I need to do a build. It's just that single jar file will build. And I need to copy it back over. So now I just grab this. Delete the old one from the web server. Paste the new one in. There we go. I'll go back to Windows. Try it again. We'll go ahead and trust from now on. Huh. 
So now what's the problem? Who are my, my SQL experts in the room? What's that? Yeah, the root, in my experience, I don't know, the root user who I'm logged in as uh, definitely usually doesn't work over a network connection. I don't know if there's any way to make it work. Um, so again, another issue, sort of the IDE just rolled without it all work locally. So let's go. Luckily, I prepared for you guys. And so I actually created a, I created a user password. All right, one more change. Again, we'll. Build, copy, paste, okay. So now we think it's going to work? Let's see. All right, we got it to work. So really, I mean, again, this is a not really too specific example. Java Web Start, JNLP. I think a, sort of a lot of the types of common things working with any IDE. Yes, question? Sorry to interrupt. No. Say you've got a user who's got a Java Web Start application up. They've got an error. They, you don't have the uh, Java console turned on by default. You want to get to it. Is there anybody to get to the Java console that hasn't been turned on? So, um, like, have them turn it on afterward rather than having to restart the app. And when you say, right, can I get to that job console if it hadn't been turned on in the first place? Can you get to it remotely? Is that what you're asking, or can you? Um, yeah, you can start it up, and then um, the problem in our case, though, we never, uh, the exception occurred. I think they'd have to restart the app in that case. But yeah, you can start it up. Right. You wouldn't see the error until you started it, started the console. Yeah, that might be true. That's a good question. I don't know why. Um, what's there might be something you have to install to have that here. I don't. Right, right. Well, plus I don't have an internet connection, so I couldn't add it anyhow. Yep. Okay. So, in the interest of time, and I want to take some questions. Um, my next step would be then to try this in Ubuntu, um, and I will tell you it does work. We've, and if you had, if I was on a local network, you should be able to hit my machine and, and load the app. It should work fine now. But sort of carrying this test case further, what about using VirtualBox for sort of multi-tiered deployment testing, where say I develop on one system, I deploy to another. And so with that, let me switch back to VirtualBox and see if I can get Ubuntu fired up here. So this, this little green is my available memory. And then we'll see purple here when we jump into swap, and hopefully that won't happen. <laughs> this thing's really slow down. No, go ahead. Absolutely. So VirtualBox will run on, yeah, Leopard, Mac OS, 
it'll run on all the Linux distributions, Windows, and OpenSolaire. So the four. Well, it's got to be Intel Mac. It won't run on a Power Mac. No. no. All right, and so I'll do the same thing. I've got Ubuntu running. I can move this to my Ubuntu desktop. Um, again, I'll maximize. So again, you can't really tell. And let me grab um, my IP address. I should have an IP address here. Yeah, so what was served up for me was 1.3. And so the other cool thing is I came out of a saved state. Now, whatever sort of systems you have running are, are up and running as well. And so let me start the browser here. Oops. So one of the things I have running is uh, the Glassfish application server. And again, it just that's localhost. It's available. And so now let's go back to my host operating system. Um, and now I can do cool things. Like as a developer in NetBeans, I can add, let me clean this up a bit. I can add additional servers that I'm dealing with. And so let me add a server. And I'm going to add another version of Glassfish. Now, this is a remote domain. Now, this would be identical to if this was a machine in my data center somewhere or my lab somewhere. Um, right? It wants to know the host name or IP, IP address. So I put that in. Cool. And I got that little green arrow there. That tells me that it is detected it and that it's up and running. And so now at this point, I can go to some projects I have. And you know, a good thing to test across operating systems is, uh, of course, Ajax is one of those technologies that sort of seems you know, very open to testing on, on different OSs. And so I downloaded a couple sample projects from uh, a pro Ajax book. And so let me change their runtime properties to actually use, well, I, usually, I should have named it Glassfish Ubuntu, but it's, I forgot to change the name. So it's Glassfish 1. That's OK. And at this point, I'm going to change this one as well so I don't forget. OK, so at this point, when I go to run the project, it's going to build it and deploy it to the remote local, I mean, it's local on my laptop, but as far as NetBeans is concerned, oh, that's not what I wanted to do. Uh, so NetBeans has this concept of a main project. And so let me set this as the main project. Thank you. Kill this one. Got way too much going on now. All right, let's try this again. OK, there we go. Chapter 4, running. And so yeah, it's going to build it, and then it's going to deploy it to the copy of Ubuntu running, the server on Ubuntu. And it should launch a browser here locally pointing to that. Dun, 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 dun. 
Any questions while this is loading? It won't be any second. Should be anyhow. Oh, I think it's up. So you can see my machine's really starting to wheeze now with these two. I still have Windows running as well, but I want I want I kept that running on purpose. I want I definitely want to show something. All right, so a common type of you know, AJAX feature is autocomplete. And so say you wanted to compare and contrast how this looked on various operating systems. You know, type in A, and you see you, know, you got sort of the autocomplete thing happening. Now, well, let's say, let's try this on. So I could copy this over to Ubuntu. I could change the URL to localhost because that's where it's running. But what about Windows? What about from one virtual machine to another virtual machine doing this testing? And yikes, <laughs> come on, baby. There we go. So I should be able to paste. There it is. So I copied from OpenSolaris, pasted it into Windows, hit, and then A. And you see, it looks a little different. I mean, not that you necessarily care, but it's, if we went back to OpenSolaris, it was it sort of lined up nicely. It's really a Firefox issue. It looks identical to that in Ubuntu, but on IE, um, it looks a little different. And then just one last thing to test. We'll go back. There we go. Two, three. I spelled parallel. P R A L E L. That's right. Oh, I didn't, I didn't deploy this one. OK, let me, that ain't going to work. No. Yes, you see the purple there, I know. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was trying to avoid this. So while I'm, I'm going to go ahead and launch this. This will take a couple of seconds, because it is swapping. Um, and we have about a couple minutes left, I think. So do, are there any questions? Yes. I'm really impressed with the GFS and the ability to take snapshots. I really like that. Uh, what other advantages would you say uh, OpenSolaris has? Like, why would you want to use OpenSolaris over something else like Linux? The reason, so the, uh, the, the alternative talk I, I could have proposed for this conference was just, you know, what is OpenSolaris and go through some of those things. And so, what I generally focus on. Our uh, ZFS is, of course, a big piece of that. Uh, the D-Trace feature, the dynamic tracing, is a very cool feature of Solaris. Open, I mean, Open Solaris is really, um, you know, the next, it's the, the development ground for the next version of Solaris. And so it's got everything that Solaris 10 has, uh, and then some. And so D, the dynamic tracing, uh, the service management framework's really nice. So for managing your services, um, uh, uh, and you, you saw a little bit of, of that. Uh, I didn't really talk about it, but when I started and stopped uh, Apache in MySQL, that was using the service management framework. Um, Crossbow is a brand new feature that's in this newest version of OpenSolaris. It's a project name for our virtual networking. So you can actually create virtual network interface cards on your machine uh, based off your one. So on a laptop like this, I could create five virtual NICs 
and then I could do flow control amongst those NICs, or I could set up you know, my virtual machines to point to those various network interface cards. It's a really nice feature. Yep. Anything else? Thanks. There we go. So quickly, I've got a couple minutes. So say you're doing something like this. It's just simple, but it's two effects happening at once. And say you wanted to use something like that. And I question is, can IE handle that? I'll do. I can. So I always close with that at my, my Linux talks. No one's surprised. But. So I think I have like, what, a minute? Nothing? Yeah. So if there are any other questions, if they're not, I'll cut well, you loose. This is a DFS question, but are yeah. you talking about Time Slider and do you know if that works over NFS or works over network? I know it's like the snapshots, right? You can go back in time. Would work over a network? I haven't thought about that. Because um, the trick is that DFS is cool with snapshots and all, but everything that matters is on the server somewhere, right? And they access it with SIFs or... Yeah, so just for those of you who don't know, Time Slider is the feature that... Um, you saw the snapshotting feature that I did. We basically put a nice little... Uh, a user interface on top of that. So for all your data, we take snapshots every 15 minutes, um, and we call that time slider. So it's kind of equivalent to Time Machine in Mac OS. You can go back to any point in time, um, and I'm happy to show any video demo of that. Does it work over NFS, though? I am skeptical that it would. Um, I'd have to think about it. I, but I don't believe it would. Anything else? about Sun being purchased by Oracle. Yeah. The only thing I know is that they set a date for the shareholder approval meeting, which is like July 21st. And so at that date, I don't know how long it is after that, assuming it's approved, it's a couple weeks. I, yeah, I don't know much. What's yes? the strategy for uh, enterprises that want to use Solaris for their servers and open Solaris? How, they, how do they work together? Is, is there some kind of development yeah. Well, it's so this, yeah. The strategy is if um, it is the next version of Solaris, and so if you're looking for some of the features that are going to be in Solaris.next, whatever they call it, um, you could start deploying Open Solaris, and it will deploy. You know, this release actually deploys on Spark now, which is a, a new feature. We didn't have that for the previous releases of Open Solaris, and so you can start putting it in your data center. They've upped the support contracts to like five years, and so you can get the same support you can on Solaris. And so, yeah, it's just the roadmap to Solaris.next. And I, I hope someday I can say Solaris 11, but that they haven't decided what it's going to be called in the back. And what about network installs? Yeah, right. Oh, so you're talking about Jumpstart? So. That was one of the issues, actually, with getting it ported to Spark. There is no jumps. This is one of the big changes between Solaris 10 and Open Solaris. There is no Jumpstart support in Open Solaris. They've changed it to a different technology called Automated Installer, and so it is a network install. Uh, it's similar to Jumpstart. It's just different. But that is available now, and it's actually the only way. If you, it's kind of, if you have a Spark machine, the only way to get Solaris on Spark is through the automated, the network install. There is no installer for Spark, at the moment. We have lunch now, right? Anyhow, yeah. So we're not like, if there's a couple more questions, I can, I can take them.
All right, dude, thanks. All right. If there's not any more, then I'll cut you loose. Why did you Yeah. <laughs> I didn't put the CDs in the bag, I'll tell you that. that was a, I didn't personally do that. They got sent here, and uh, I won't name who did. No, but I find, I find, um, I try not to be, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, aggressive or, uh, I just, I think, you know, people are interested in the open source technology, so I, I find that generally at Linux conferences people are receptive to hearing about open source, so what's going on? Yes, over there. Yeah, I don't, there might be some hacks on, that, that are available. I don't, not that I am aware of. I haven't seen that. I don't know exactly. I don't know if, I, I think that's a Mac licensing issue, actually. I don't, I don't, you know, their OS really only runs on their hardware. And as far as I know, they don't want it running anywhere else. Yeah, so that's really the only limitation of VirtualBox. If you want to test on a Mac, you kind of need a Mac as your host OS. And then you have all the other OSs available. Yeah, none, there's no plans that I know of for the Mac OS support. Did you have another question? Well, just to kind of want to expound on that. When Oracle purchased Sun Microsystems, the main reason why they purchased them, from my understanding, is because they were so successful in open source. You know what I mean? That's the yeah, from what, from what Oracle said, they bought us for Solaris and Java, were the two primary things that they called out. So, all right. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. Um, here. This work was recorded by View Digital Media and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike version 3.0. For more information about the Southeast Linux Fest, visit southeastlinuxfest.org.